0: Hello, and welcome once again to the So Weird podcast. I'm Zach.
1: I'm Kathy.
2: I'm Emily.
0: And I'm Melissa. And tonight we are very excited to have a special guest on the show. She's worked as a writer and producer for film and television for over 40 years. Some of her most notable credits include Moonlighting, Rugrats, The Outer Limits, and the beloved Halloween Town films. The listeners of this podcast will, of course, most recognize her for the Disney Channel series So Weird, which she executive produced, in which she wrote fan-favorite episodes like Banshee and Lost. We are extremely pleased to welcome Allie Marie Matheson to the podcast.
3: Hello. Oh. I am happy to be here and to meet everybody. As long as nobody mentions those damn Jetsons again, we're going to be <laughs> A-OK. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, I'll, I'll remove the six Jetsons-related questions I have in my uh, <laughs> questions here. That's a joke. Uh,
3: <laughs> I don't recall, and I don't know.
0: <laughs> um, though, uh, my first question, uh, before we go any further, Allie, I have to say I am a huge fan of your dad. Um, for any listeners who don't know, Ali Marie's father was the legendary Richard Maffson, who wrote, I Am Legend, and many wonderful episodes of The Twilight Zone, uh, fantastic Roger Corman, Vincent Price movies in the 60s, and so much other wonderful stuff. I, in fact, uh, have a signed first edition of The Shrinking Man over here on my... Really?
3: That's very cool. I'm not yeah. even sure if I have that.
0: <laughs> uh, well, it's falling apart. I keep it in a, a air-sealed bag because if you touch it, it like starts to crumble, but... Um... <laughs> It's very cool, nevertheless. So, and actually my first question, um, obviously, like I said, your dad was a very successful writer and screenwriter and your brother was, is also a successful writer. Which so, one? Uh, well, I- I'm talking about Richard Christian, though. I guess you have your other brothers are as well, but-
3: Right, Chris did Bill and Ted, my other brother.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I love the Bill and Ted movies. I- I'm just getting schooled tonight already. We're <laughs> a veritable dynasty. Yeah, I mean, you really are, so I mean, was getting into writing just part of the family tradition for you?
3: Well, sort of yes, sort of no. I had originally at age seven planned to be a cowgirl, but that particular career did not pan out as well as I had hoped. (laughs) So after that, when I went to college and I was interested in music, so I was a professional singer for a while before I moved into writing. But that being said, it was obviously a career and an environment that was very fruitful and very prevalent in my family. From the very get-go, we were going to sets with my dad, we saw writers they came to our house, or we went to their house, people from Twilight Zone, people from Star Trek, people from my dad's movies, Benson Price was a friend of my dad's, Rod Serling was a friend, so many interesting people would come through our lives who were of the creative ilk that that really was ultimately the direction that I think pretty much all of us went to.
0: Um, Do you have any like particular stories that come to mind from those set visits or just anything that you'd like to share?
3: Oh, it's funny. They, I don't think on them as unusual but I guess people do if you sit in Boris Karloff's lap and you know play with the cat that was in one of the dark cat black cat that was in one of my dad's movies and you know wandered around and saw the various sets met Steven Spielberg when I was like 13 or 14 when he they were doing duel right in uh, California and my mother said oh I should meet that nice young man That that was you know that was good I ended up doing amazing stories with him Ironically, uh, what, twenty years later or something like that. So yeah, you know, it's a small world. The entertainment can be a small world.
0: Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know, Duel was Spielberg's very first movie. So that was right at the before he became Steven Spielberg, as we know him. So that's I think pretty he, cool. Did, my
3: dad's story was originally on Playboy magazine and I think that Spielberg did a brilliant job on it. All oh of yeah yeah a really that's a
0: great job. movie and and just you know you have to excuse me but you know stories about vincent price boris carl i love all those guys so that's amazing to me
3: <laughs> they were great they were great it was uh it was a very uh, interesting and and neato time to be little and be in in that sort of environment wow so i think the the bottom line was that environment seemed normal to me i guess if you grew up with a family of accountants that seems normal but i know that my algebra teacher would have had a heart attack if i'd ever become an accountant <laughs>
1: <laughs> In math so the next question kind of segueing into um how you became involved with the disney channel and what's so weird
3: well i think interestingly enough i listened to john my, my ex husband i listened to his ipod and i think he sort of gave a background on that too we worked on rugrats we had done a spec script and Rugrats, Eric Casimiro had us in to interview. And we thought we were just going in for some doing, you know, one or two episodes. And things moved very quickly. The writers who were the story editors ended up going into the movie. And all of a sudden, within it seemed like weeks, suddenly we were the story editors and running the show. And from that, we became more visible because we were nominated for an Emmy for a Rugrats special we had done. And at the Emmys, I believe I was sitting next to somebody uh, from Disney, but as you become more visible, you meet more people. And uh, we met some people who liked what we were doing and talked to us about So Weird and showed us the pilot, I still vividly remember seeing the pilot because I was watching it alone in my house. And that one moment where the little boy turns and looks at her, I'm like, whoa, that's freaking me out. (laughs) So that really caught my notice that there was some interesting things happening in that show. And I thought that the actors in it were just top notch from the very beginning. So we ended up working for Disney, we ended up having uh, an overall deal with them. And they ended up sending us to Vancouver, which we hadn't expected to happen. We thought we were just gonna do it from a distance, but ironically, even though you can do that nowadays, you couldn't really do that like 20 odd years ago. The technology was not in the place to do that. And you had to be on set anyway, because we had minors, et cetera, and we kind of needed to take care of things on set. So off we went.
4: Wow! Wow! It's funny you mentioned the little boy and family reunion, and, and him and popping out of the screen. I remember that from my first time watching that that episode, or that's one of the moments that stood out for me as well. Um, I I guess our next question. I I noticed you commented on one of our podcast live streams that you had rewatched. So weird on like I'm guessing on Disney Plus. <laughs> so uh, I was wondering what your impressions of the show were when we rewatching for the first time in many years. In many years. You know, that's an interesting question because I was a
3: different person then and what I felt, what were my passions, interests, et cetera, were different because I had a young child and was married to someone else and was living in a new area for the first time. There were a lot of things going on that I think John and I pursued and we're interested in, in terms of so weird. Uh, for example, when you look at Fountain, which is still one of my favorite episodes, Fountain is about, and I love the fact that she's cognizant of her own current age, no matter how far back she goes. But that was something as, as I grow older that I'm aware of too, that you look back on your past and think, oh, well, what would I have done if I had been as I know today, but I was younger. Would I have done something different? Would I have been something different? How would I have seen my family, et cetera? And I liked very much that that was there. I liked Nightmare and Banshee. And I was also able to look at Mac McKenzie differently in her relationship with kids because now my daughter's grown and she's in grad school, even though she was little, very little when we did so weird. And just looking at the changes that you have as a mother and also primarily because I've lost my parents now. And now I look at Banshee differently because I understand the loss and and the sadness that can go around that, that I wasn't as completely cognizant of then because of course my parents were still alive and I was younger. But it's, it's kind of amazing to see that that it's still there, that we still we still got
4: it. That's really interesting because that's something a lot of fans have commented on as well. Is that their perspective on the show has changed over the years, and, and it's a show that we we've all said that different age groups can enjoy and appreciate for different reasons. So it's interesting that you picked up on on that as well, rewatching.
3: Well, John and I, John
4: Cooksey and I, were never.
3: Uh, it was funny. I was talking to my agent today, and I said I don't do perky. I've never done perky. So he and I were just pretty darn perk-free overall. And if you ever see a perky episode in So Weird, we probably had not too much to do with it. <laughs> we have always been about, the, for lack of a better way to phrase it, deeper things about home and faith, about family, and, and ultimately, I think, love and courage. And these are the motifs that you see in So Weird over and over again. And, uh, you know, you take it vicariously through fee at times, but, you know, she takes us on our journey, but these are the things that we cared about. We, uh, I know that from what I've heard, the, the final season on So Weird, they did it where they re- kept returning to status quo at the end. And to me, to be honest, that's what you do in sitcoms. Uh, we ran a sitcom in production and the whole goal of a sitcom is that nobody really changes. It's like they change, but they don't. And you kind of go back to where you were and it's, you know, it's, it's nothing too terribly intense, but we, and we had a, a great journey was so weird. And we had a journey that we intended to finish at the end. And I think for both of us, that was, that was difficult because you know, our stories and, and where we were going that we pursued, we were headed somewhere. And I know it was hard for both of us to, to lose that and to lose uh, uh, that specialness.
4: That was going to be another question I was going to ask about, um, since you mentioned that there's, the arc that you had planned was not completed. Um, were there any particular ideas from that didn't come to fruition that you, uh, you know, regret not being able to fulfill from that?
3: I think so. I would have liked Fee to ultimately truly connect with her father. anybody who's read My Father knows that life after death. For him is has always been such a big topic. Uh, what dreams may come is is a, a perfect uh, representation of that. That he very much believed that, and we we caught a bit of it in strange geometry. But I would have liked to have taken her further. I know we want to take it further with with her, with the family, with the story about the father, with how fee fit in. We we definitely whenever John and I did shows we. You know, I don't think we had too many arcs on River Rats, but normally we have arcs and places we wanted our characters to go and grow, to, to, to grow as, as human beings do. What do you think the
2: characters would be up to in the present day?
3: <laughs> what would they be up to in the present day? That's interesting. Hmm. I would like to think that Jack and Fee would have gone on to college and not lived in the bus forever with their mother. That that would not be so good. <laughs> I think that Fee would have turned out to be an uh, amazing individual who would have had such a continual curiosity and fascination uh, about the world and, and pursuing it. And I think Molly would have worked through her uncertainty and losses and, and even the addiction and, and found somebody that she could have a really loving relationship with as her children grew older and moved on. I don't think we ever would have done that. You know, we wouldn't have done 10 years of so weird. But that's ultimately what i like to think happened. Yeah. I heard you ask John a bus question. Don't <laughs> ask me no bus questions. <laughs> I saw that. John was like, they asked me where that bus, who made that bus? And I'm like, I have no idea. They're John desperate.
1: Assistant. They're like, what happened to that bus? And I'm like, I don't know if anyone really <laughs> knows that. but maybe- <laughs> It
3: drove. I still remember vividly the very beginning where they're they're driving uh, in the, in the, the credits, we shot that on Mount Seymour at like three in the morning. I remember that vividly. And I was thinking, oh, please, God, let them not go over the side of this cliff. <laughs> like it, it just always amazes me because when you look at a series that you helped run, you, it's like all the memories behind it crowd in next to what you actually see. Like, uh, what is the heck of the name of the Halloween episode? I can't even think of the name of it. Boo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were there. I feel like we did French hours on that. We were just there to like, I still remember in my, being in my trailer at like three or four in the morning and those zombies would wander in and I had them some coffee and they'd leave. And I'm like, this is a strange way to make a living.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you got to meet Henry Winkler? Oh, yeah.
3: I, I, we met Henry. Uh, Henry and Larry were friends and we all went out for fancy schmancy uh, sushi uh, when he first came to Vancouver. So yes, we, we absolutely met him.
0: So something you had mentioned was how it was so weird, you very much had an arc in mind for Fiona and the other characters. And um, you've worked on other shows that were very serialized in that manner, but you've also worked on anthology series like The Outer Limits or Amazing Stories where every episode is a self-contained story. How do those two styles contain, uh, compare to each other?
3: Well, I think for example, with my amazing stories was based on a short story i wrote that sold to the magazine and then amazing stories ended up buying it because they liked it and if anybody can find it online it's really a a very well done episode ken kwapis directed it and uh kathy baker starred in it it's just really really well done but there is an arc in the story There's a beginning where she's headed out and she's upset and she's driving and she's not going to deal with all of the things that are happening in her life, but her life comes after her in cars and they're trying to give her a message that she needs to take. That's all I'm going to tell you because you have to find this episode. It's very cool. (laughs) So, you know, obviously there's, there's a 360 in that.
0: So you don't really approach it any differently. It's just instead of it being an arc that's spread out over multiple episodes, it's just an arc within the half right. an hour or it's, hour long.
3: It's all inclusive within that particular drama, whatever time that I have. And I think John and I, one of the things we often did was we were sort of arc uh, interested in arcs so a lot of the things that we did even in half an hour shows we we did a show which will probably be infamous forever called big brother jake that we worked on which was a sitcom we were producers and even in sitcoms where ostensibly nothing changes we had it where one of the characters hadn't dealt with his family hadn't dealt with his parents and his inability to talk to them and deal with them and they came to visit and he had to go there. So there was, there was absolutely an arc and a change. If the characters don't change at all, I, I'm not sure what you've got there. They don't have to change instantly, but if you have no, you know, my brother, I remember vividly when i was first starting out, my brother, Richard said to me, well, what you need to do is you need to run your character up a tree, throw rocks at them until they figure out who's throwing the rocks and how to avoid the rocks. And then they can get down off the tree. <laughs> I'm like,
1: uh,
0: what? Oh, okay. No, that's great advice.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a little cryptic, but I liked it. The next question. So in our interview with John Cooksey, and you mentioned this uh, before, we asked him what his depiction of hell would look like for So Weird, mm-hmm. since that's where the original storyline was I'm
3: going.
1: sorry, his depiction of what? Of hell. So we're... <laughs> He was traveling <laughs> to hell to save Rick in that original season three storyline. Uh, what is his
3: depiction of hell?
1: The <laughs> so answer saying that he compares it to images and ideas from the novel "What Dreams May Come" by your yes. Richard, and which he calls the most beautiful and romantic novel of all time. Did he
2: really?
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. He never told me that. <laughs> My father was, if anybody is familiar with my father material and something like Zach is, my father was always about, well, to put it bluntly, we make our own hell or we make our own heaven. And hell is really, for for my father, would be an environment. And interestingly enough, in What Dreams May Come the hell that is created in that because my mother was such a lover of lights and gardens and animals and beauty that the hell in that book is she is living in this horrible dark dank place but she she doesn't know it she can't her depression is such that she can't get out and I thought that was really fascinating so I don't know that I would look at hell cartoonish level, notwithstanding, I wouldn't look at it as fire and brimstone to me, it would be trapped in a negative place for an indefinite amount of time. That's pretty hellacious. Wow. Right. And the fact that my dad wrote that book and worked to rescue her from hell. And then I don't know how many of you read the book, but he can't do it. And he says that I'll stay here with you. I'll stay with you in hell. You won't be here alone.
2: Hmm.
3: And that changes everything. He's willing to accept where she's at just to be with her. I just, yeah, it's an amazing book. I have to read it
4: someday now.
3: (laughs) It's also got more than a few autobiographical things. As my father is wont to do, he uses his name and my mom's name all the time. But I'm Marie in that book. I'm a bit perky in that book, though. That's annoying. But other
0: Mm. than that.
4: (laughs) All right, uh, switching gears here a little bit. Um, an episode that fans like to talk about a lot is Twin, because Twin, uh, we know, was reshot and the ending was rewritten. And I guess I was wondering if you were involved in the rewriting process for Twin.
3: You're going to think this is very obtuse of me, but please remind me which one is Twin.
4: <laughs> twin is the episode, end of season two, where uh, Fee meets her dad on the rooftop.
3: Oh my, I remember that. That was a (laughs) bitch to shoot. Holy moly. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah, tell us about it.
3: (laughs) A minor kid on the top of a rooftop, and it's like you're seeing your life pass before your eyes. Um, You know, there were times when I was more actively on set than I was involved with Rewrite. And that my memory of Twin is being on the set with that and praying to God nobody fell off the roof. (laughs) to be 100% honest we I remember we had to go through windows and up this and up that to be on the top of a roof and it was it was it was nerve-wracking so that part was nerve-wracking but uh, I'm sure John Cooksey would know more about the rewrite on that one
4: yeah he told us about it I was just wondering if you were involved too
0: (laughs) no I was just trying to keep people from killing themselves that's all (laughs) And, and um by the way when Kathy was in Vancouver she found the the hotel where that scene was shot didn't you
1: Right, yeah, Hotel Vancouver. So right in the downtown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing hotel. It's
3: absolutely beautiful.
2: Yeah, we actually have uh, pictures of, like, behind the scenes of that uh, shoot. And I always imagine uh, being someone in one of the buildings across the street and uh, watching and seeing uh, people, like, uh, fly off the building. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> I would not want to be that person.
3: I'm personally just amazed we got that done. That was, there are just a few shows that I recall that just were nerve-wracking, and that was one of them. Very nerve-wracking.
2: Okay, so I saw on uh, your IMDB, um, back in like the late 90s, you wrote uh, for a couple of video games, the Rugrats video games. I was wondering if the process for writing uh, for video games is uh, much different from uh, writing for a TV or film?
3: Yeah, it is because you're dealing with people who run the video games and have completely different priorities. Yeah. They're not so interested in ARC as much as you get the visuals down that they need and the things that they want. And it's, it's not about, oh, character, what's his character arc when, when he goes from A to B. It's a matter of making sure that your visuals and, and the machinations of the visuals are right on target. Uh, so we don't have to have touchy feely moments of the characters and, you know, deep meaningful lines as much as you need to make sure that you, you get that video game right. It, it certainly left me with the feeling that I would not want to do video games for a career.
2: Yeah, I kind of figured since those were your only two credits there.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, I didn't do that and go, say, this is fun. However, we did do Rugrats on Broadway. We had a blast. That was awesome.
2: Really?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you got to talk about that.
3: (laughs) Yes, please. That was was really cool. Actually, um, excuse me. We were in Connecticut for a while, and then we were at Radio City Music Hall. And I still remember it like one in the morning that we were blocking and my parents had come to visit. And my, I took my mom up on the stage. I said, mom, I don't think since neither of us are going to be Rockettes that we'll ever have a chance to be on this stage again. <laughs> so <laughs> we got on the stage and did our little, you know, two step just to say we'd been there. But it was just an amazing, mysterious place when nobody was there. So beautiful. So cool. Yeah, it was. Like... That was that was a lot of fun. Hmm.
0: Well, and something we've already talked about a lot is how you've written for animation and other times. You know, you laughed when you I mentioned the Jetsons. Well, um, I'm also going to mention Mask and the Totally Demented Adventures of Ed Grimley or whatever it was called. Oh, God, uh, I
3: need it. Quick, I need to ask for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the ironic part about animation, at least to me, was that. I think the average layman would think it was just a very halcyon environment that everybody was, you know, puppies and kittens, but darned, there's some dysfunctional people running animation is all I can say. That was just some crazy ass times. It really was, excuse my French.
0: (laughs) I mean, how did your experience working on animation compare to writing for television, live action stuff, I mean.
3: Uh, Well, you're one step removed because you write the script and then there's animatics done which show you what it's going to look like visually. But then it goes on and you see the voice actors, which is a hoot because you get there early in the morning. And of course, if you listen to Rugrats, they're very cute and adorable. They
0: have their little baby voices like that. But they're
3: women of 40s and they'd come in and they'd have their coffee and their cigarettes and they'd discuss on their boyfriends and their kids and whatever. Uh-huh. And then they go into the audio room and they'd be like, kids or their baby, like that. And I, I found that that was true across the board just because of the hours and the difficulties with, with working with minors that I would guess almost all animation shows are working with adult actors that can do kid voices. But what, uh, uh, for example, when I first started out because I was just doing spec, I can't believe, i didn't. I forgotten I'd done The Jetsons. I think that was the first thing. <laughs> I ever, ever did.
0: The internet and, never forgets anything.
3: I know. I really, <laughs> I really wish you would forget it if you possibly could. Uh, in terms of the adventures with Martin Short, that was pretty insane because that was he brought around all his uh, SCTV friends.
0: Oh, that's cool.
3: So I, that was one of the last gigs, I think, that Hannah barbera even did. Uh, Joe Hanna and Bill. Bill Hannah and Joe Barbera, they were like direly geriatric and they kind of lived on the very top of that building and if you were summoned to them you genuflected and, and you know backed up carefully around <laughs> them because they'd been around forever and my office was downstairs with I I would swear it was just like these guys would be doing these tapes but I keep hearing them all the time so I'd be trying to write a script and hear this bing <laughs> And I was like, oh, this has got to be
0: water torture somewhere. Ah.
3: So it was it was interesting working at Hanna-Barbera. I think I was one of the last to do so.
0: I mean, and obviously Rugrats was a show you had a lot more involvement and control over compared to those early credits.
3: You always have only so much control no more. Even as an exact producer, there's always people who there's always cooks in the soup. And sometimes the cooks offer good seasoning, and other time it's like, oh my god, that's going to make something unpalatable. Can I tell you? So,
0: and that's just universal across the entire cinematic entertainment industry.
3: Forever and ever and ever. I saw the same th- same thing happen with my dad, and my dad used his his uh, other name, Logan Swanson, when he absolutely hated something. So, if you ever see anything with Logan Swanson on it, that's my dad, and he hated it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think he used that with the Charlton Heston I Am Legend, which was just ah,
0: a car oh. accident. You know, none of the I Am Legend movies are as good as the book, but I kind of like that one, to be totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: well, that's it. That's it for you. <laughs> oh, no. I do
4: guess.
3: and the Jetsons. You and I, we can time. <laughs> <laughs> no longer <laughs> talk.
4: Um,
1: going on to the next question. Do you remember receiving the news of Disney wanting to change up so weird um, for season three. And what was that like?
3: It's always upsetting in a way, because in a way, it's your swan song. You either do what they want, and then everything you've done before is rendered almost moot in a way. Or I, I think they want you to render it moot. Or if you do it, it's almost like you're, you're selling the characters. You're selling their journey away and and we left because, like I said we we don't do we can be John and I were always funny, and certainly we could do things that were comedic and were sitcom, but we were never insipid uh, and I just think they took the show in a direction that would we never would have, and when they say we want to do this, again, it's you know when it's our way or the highway, you have to make your call. And that happens. It absolutely happens. And I get it, I, you know, in, in a rhetorical sense, I get it. I get that Disney didn't want to have something that had that kind of an intensity and depth. They, that's not what they were looking for. The storylines that we pursued were intense. And that's not what ultimately I think they wanted from the show. But I personally think, and clearly from the fans too, it's like, it was quite jarring to go from our journey to all of a sudden, (laughs) everybody
1: is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, Disney thinks that Children or kids, or especially that age, like preteen, couldn't handle these storylines. But you know, as we see now, they, we definitely weren't interested in it. Right. And well, I
3: think the operative word is twenty years later. You know this was 20 years ago when uh, Disney perhaps was finding its own feet. Right. And this was before things like Netflix, et cetera, had become predominant and storylines that were dark and intense had come to fruition. It, Disney, I think was on its own journey, but I'm grateful that we had two seasons to, to do that. I'm still friends with Belinda and mm-hmm. I'm still friends with Mac. Uh, you know, I, I stay in touch with you. You, you had a, had a journey together it's funny but that's really what it is when you do a series because you're together all the time I mean certainly there's some people that you come where you know you can't get away from them quick enough but for the most part it's an amazing journey to take together right yeah
4: we love hearing that uh you know different cast members and people involved with the show are still in touch with each other that's That's so cool. (laughs) Um, And a question that I ask everyone we interview is, have you ever experienced anything paranormal? And if not, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? Hmm. Well,
3: considering my background of my father, who was often in pursuit of the paranormal in one way or another, I think the most and I use it quotation mark paranormal was the psychic that I spoke to after my father passed away because until he had passed away uh, there was a part of me that just simply didn't go there for whatever reason maybe because my father went there who knows but I talked to a psychic and she didn't know me and she even if you looked at my father there there are always going to be things they won't know And so I thought I would just ask her some questions. And I said to her, what did he think of the memorial picture we used? And again, there's no way this woman could get a hold of the memorial picture we used for my dad. And she said, he said, nice, but no hat. And my dad always wore a hat. And I thought, okay, I'll try this one more time. And I said, so what does he think about what I framed in my office? And she said, he thinks it's funny. He doesn't know why they gave it now. And it was the city of Los Angeles saying, my dad was commemorated as the best citizen of blah, yada, 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 yada. And just those two questions and her response really turned started turning me around to the point where I'm almost at 360 in terms of what I believe about life after death. It's really started me on a journey starting there and uh, is it paranormal? I don't know but it wasn't who I was when I started the journey but my um, because that opened it up to a, a lot of reading and research because that's what I do. I'm somewhat empirical that way as my dad did too. He had all these books he left behind and I, interestingly enough, I think I've come to believe what my father believed. Now, it would be lovely, of course, if when our parents pass away, they would drop a burning bush in our front yard and say, here I am, everything's good, we're fine. But I don't think it's supposed to be that easy. But it's, it's a matter of faith. For me, it's a matter of diligence, but it's also a matter of faith and repetition that the, people say the same thing over and over and over again about what they see and experience. So I believe my parents are together, actually. And that is, uh, that's a journey for me, and it's a comfort, too. Now, that being said, I don't do ghosts. I don't like ghosts. Ironically, I have a friend of mine who writes ghost stories, and he, mm-hmm. he's going to Gettysburg to go dig up some Civil War ghosts, and he knows I like the Civil War. I'm aficionado about battles. And he said, do you want to go? And I'm like, no,
1: <laughs>
3: because I don't want to see ghosties. I'm out on ghosts. <laughs>
0: <Yeah. laughs> That's so crazy! I was just in Gettysburg like two weeks ago.
3: That place is laden with them. Oh my gosh!
0: That that's what everybody who lives there tells you. <laughs> yeah,
3: they're all over the dang place. I read about this woman who went down to her basement to get some uh, some stuff that she had jams that she did, and she looked over and there were like soldiers marching past her. I'm like, oh hell no! That's I'm not doing that. Okay. So I, I you know, it's interesting. My dad said he said that he he never liked it when people said that he was a horror writer he said i'm not a horror writer i don't do horror i do all kinds of different things but not that not that dark creepy scary stuff so me i can't either i can't either
2: yeah okay so the next question actually comes from one of our co-hosts and that couldn't be here tonight uh named Kat, and she asks, uh which character resonates with you the most
3: I think Molly, Molly does, because Molly was always working to deal with her uncertainties, her, her difficulties with her father, the loss of her husband, her addictions, the uncertainty about her music and her creativity, her loving her children, but not always knowing how to deal with them as a mother and a fellow creative individual. Yeah, absolutely. Molly. I mean, I, you know, I talked to Mac now and we, we, same thing. It's still a matter of, we, we connected right off on the set because we both had kids and we were both working in a creative situation. And yeah, I mean, fee is wonderful, but she was 13 or whatever. And uh, I have to say, I was not like that at 13.
2: She's who I wanted to be when I was 13.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that'd be pretty cool to be running around on a bus and exam. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think a lot of viewers really wanted to be Fee when they grew up. So a project you worked on around the same time. You were doing now you're solar... making me
3: nervous. <laughs> no, I
0: swear, I swear. <laughs> well, it was also for Disney Channel. I mentioned it in the intro, which is the first two Halloween Town movies. Yeah. And I'm curious how those came about and if any... Those, that, those movies kind of share some of the same energy is so weird. And if any of the ideas for one influence the other or vice versa.
3: Well, it's funny because when you write things, unless you really are coming from a very predominant position, you never know that you're going to write something that will really resonate with the masses. In Halloween Town, it's like I'm some sort of hero when people hear that I worked on that. I have to push my mind back to remember, but I know there was somebody, Paul somebody can't think of his last name. There was a pitch we'd all put in and then we ended up doing the script and, and it was a lot of fun to shoot. Uh, we, you know, I met Debbie Reynolds and, and we just, it was a very enjoyable shoot and I thought they did a really good job. And because it was so popular, I mean, my gosh, they show it every Halloween and they have a, a similar they have a fan club that they all get together and dress up and do all this you know hoo-ha and uh so we ended up doing halloween two but we didn't we did not end up doing halloween three It just it was it was a really fun cute idea
0: okay on the topic of um so weird one of the episodes that you're credited with writing is encore which was the clip show and I'm curious about the particular challenges of writing for an episode specifically designed to use like 90% pre-existing footage.
3: Well, a clip show, in a way, is very often an expedient way to to do that and use, as you mentioned, pre-existent footage. If anything, it's more of the uh, you know the wheelhouse of the editor who needs to put it together in in a very smooth and linear fashion. And we kind of, you know, we almost write links that go with it. Of course, you have to figure out what's going to fit with what. But anytime you do see that kind of, oh, here's our retrospective, and shows do it very often. It really is It's just for one reason or another, that was what needed to be done at that particular time.
0: Does the decision to do those kind of cheaper... Maybe you could call them filler episodes like that. Is yeah, that, exactly. does that usually come down I think from they the
3: network? A cheaper.
0: Yeah. Does that <laughs> usually come down from uh, the network or does that, is that something that originates in the writer's room?
3: Well, no, it doesn't. Originate. Fiscally, nothing really originates from the writer's room. Fiscally, it can originate from the producers if perhaps, just for an example, if you wanted to do something more expensive or wanted to have more effects of whatever kind, but you had only X amount of budget. It's like anything else. It's like, okay, well, we will do this and this will be more fiscally helpful and we won't be spending as much on this particular episode. So perhaps we can move some money over and spend it on this episode
0: instead. Okay. So like at the beginning of the season, do you guys get a note that says, you know, we ha- you have to write 24 episodes and one of them has to be a clip show?
3: I don't remember anything being that that obvious i think what you you start a series and you start a season with grand plans in mind but things always happen they always do things get you know the weather goes especially in vancouver the weather would go bad or somebody will get sick or you lose something or the writing doesn't work out or we get delayed or whatever so you have to kind of work with what you have because whatever it's like anything else it's like what you think it's going to be you think it's going to be smooth sailing? But there are always things that you have to deal with. There's always things that come up.
0: All right. Well, that's that's fascinating to hear because as somebody who is a writer himself and a big fan of all media, I've always had this image of the television writer's room, you know, people sitting around the table throwing ideas around. And I've always always. <laughs> no, and, we're
3: throwing things, but it's not usually. <laughs> <I guess. laughs>
0: and, you know, there's always this sense of the, you know, the creative people have the vision and the network is the one that's suppressing their creativity. And, you know, I, I never have, I, I never know how much of that is true and how much of that is just complete bunk.
3: Well, you know, it's just, it's not black and white, but it's my experience after my many years, the Jetsons notwithstanding that was, you know, that was premier, but my experience has been that always you start with a vision as a writer. You want to have this happen or that happen or you want to have this happen over a an episode or an arc of time and things can get in the way or stymie you or it can't happen for whatever reason and there are a myriad of reasons there are especially a myriad of reasons um, you know with minors or the crazy episode we did where she was a dog oh my god Excuse <laughs> <laughs> my friend's a bitch I mean thank <laughs> god we didn't do a cat or we'd still be sitting here trying to shoot it but why they
2: didn't have a cat? <laughs> uh, well, listen, I have three cats. You, you, you
3: just, uh, no. Yeah, they, you know, they're, they're very tricky. But even, you know, it's like just that. Trying to, you know, all standing around waiting for the dog to do what he's supposed to do. And, and you will notice, I believe that's the only episode we ever did with a dog.
0: Well, well that's the old axiom, right? Never work with kids or animals.
3: So W.C. <laughs> Field said, yes, and he was right. We worked with kids. Obviously, we worked with minors. And remember that minors have X amount of hours, very stringent, and then they have to go to school, and they have their guardian, and blah, 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 blah. So, it, yeah, it's just, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, they get altered because that's the nature of the beast. It just, that's how it happens. But sometimes, you know, it's it, for example, when you think of jaws, the reason you don't see the shark very much is because it never worked right so you know we would certainly cheat my dad did that all the time and i well, we learned to do that too you just cheat things what you don't see is scarier than what you can see often and
0: more often than not it works out you know sometimes
3: <laughs> yeah i still remember oh huh, you didn't even bring it up huh, uh one of my very other credits besides jetson's uh, was fame and i still remember vividly it was one of my first hour things and I watched it and they changed almost every word. And I was shocked, absolutely shocked. And now I'd be like, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I got the money and I did my best and what? There you go. Such
0: as At a certain point you just have to let go of it. You know, it's no longer yours.
3: Well, that's exactly it. Uh, in fact, right now I'm working on selling a project to animation companies and I create what I can. And then, you know, there's such a thing as the young hot writers, the the whatever, you know, lexicon that is. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure John and I were once upon a time, the young hot writers. And I, you know, I've watched that happen. And you just, you must change with the times. And it's like, okay, well, they're going to put this in and that in on the zeitgeist, et cetera. And it's like, okay, well, we'll see how that goes. Flexibility is everything. You have to be so, you can't say, oh my God, my, my words are sacrosanct. Everyone must speak my exact words because they are so damn sacrosanct. Well, uh.
0: <laughs> well, and, and very, you know, you'll notice that very few writers in Hollywood uh, have the option of even thinking that way, you know, unless you're Patty Chachofsky or something. You know?
3: Right. And not only that, but there's always so many writers who are so darn good that we want to hear every bloody word, mm-hmm. but we had an actress who shall remain nameless that I worked on a show and she couldn't memorize anything. But she was related to somebody of higher ilk, Uh-oh. and so we had to work with this person who we had to come up with words she could memorize. Mm-hmm. Probably like "and," "but," "sure," "no," "yes." But we had to work with what she could do. Wow! So that happens. It all happens. I think that's the one thing I've learned: is it just all happens, and you just you just roll with the punches because if you don't, it's gonna roll over you. So there you go. Mm-hmm. That's I'm so deep, very deep. <laughs>
2: This is God's uh, second question. She asks, uh, what was your favorite storyline to write?
3: What was my favorite storyline to write? I think, like as I mentioned, I really liked Fountain best because I love the ending. I absolutely love the ending, that Christmas and your family and togetherness doesn't have to be in one spot or another spot, that it can be wherever the people we love are. And I just really, really like that. I'm a softy in that respect. So, uh, you know, I miss that myself. My my parents are gone now and my, my siblings are scattered. And yeah, I miss that. I miss that you have those moments. So I think sometimes older writers recreate what they don't have anymore, what they missed. So,
4: yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes, too. I actually got the script on ebay (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh it's a prized possession
3: yeah i still remember i still remember shooting it in that mall and you know the funny thing is you can't know once in a blue moon if john and i said boy this is brilliant everything we're doing is brilliant well (laughs) it didn't always turn out that way but the ones that sneak up on you that you just you can't you know what you want out of it but you can't quite tell how it's going to turn out and I just thought that Fountain turned out lovely. I really liked it a lot.
4: Yeah, I, I just, it's truly like a gift to the fandom. I feel like watching that episode, it's like every Christmas I can watch this episode and it ends on such a happy, joyful note. It's like, I don't drinking something really warm. It just makes you mm-hmm. feel really good watching it.
3: Yeah, I think John and I, I'm sure I'm not telling tales out of school, but John and I brought, of course, our lives into it. And he was a child of divorce. So Nightmare was something that I think he related to that episode of parents that are having difficulties, that are having conflict and how it impacts the young boy, you know, as it impacted him. Right. It's, it's just a heck of a lot easier to write what you know. It's like my agent today, he and I met for coffee and he said, well, you know, there's a big market for thrillers. And I said, well, that's good. I can't write thrillers. Mm-hmm. I did write one thriller. <laughs> Zach, you missed that one. But that was, I think John Cooksey did all the writing because I, I could not figure the bloody thing out. I just can't come up with thrillers. It's just not my thing. So I think ideally as a writer, you find out what you do best. And we were certainly eclectic. We covered a lot of venues. But again, I, I recently wrote a movie that is, um, you know, a time travel rom-com because that's, what I like to do.
0: and yeah, You're just awesome. going to gonna force us to figure out what that thriller was on our own?
3: <laughs> no, you can dig it up. It was like, we did do thrillers. We did a, a one or two of them. This one was shot, I vividly remember it because A, it was a thriller and B, I had recently broken my ankle. So I was being taken to set and there'd been like a huge snowstorm. So I was tromping around and I'm thinking, this is not my favorite experience as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not enjoying this at all.
0: Oh, was this before I say goodbye with Sean Young? No, uh, that okay. might have been it. Okay,
3: <laughs> I'm still trying to know where you found the goddamn Jetsons.
0: <laughs> uh, IMDb has everything. No, no, I don't want them to have
3: that. <laughs> it. It, ha- it has
0: growing pains and the police academy cartoon. Oh yeah! And all I, oh of this no!
3: Stuff. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know you got to reserve the right to stink, and uh, those are not my finest hours. So.
4: Well, uh, there's another member of our uh, so weird podcast family who runs our social media. Her name's Betsy, and she want to ask you a couple questions about Bree Crew. If uh, that he possesses the uh, Jack and Molly's body. Oh
3: yeah, 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 yeah. That's funny. Actually, very witty. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. I like that one yeah and that's one of, another one of my favorites um she wanted to know if you knew who voiced brie crew when he was in his will of the wisp form so he wasn't patrick or mckenzie that's
3: you know? a very good question is it this is on par with the bus question
1: <laughs> <laughs> i have I no it.
3: darn idea <laughs> yeah
4: okay We're- i
3: apologize but i have no idea
4: there are some things maybe we're just not meant to know.
3: So, <laughs> Is it not possible that one of them did it and it was sped up or altered somehow?
4: I don't know.
3: Because to hire another person to do a
4: voiceover is expensive. Yeah, it may have even been two people because I felt like the guy that did it in season three for the first episode. Well, Molly,
0: was-
1: yeah, if anybody
3: could have done it, it would have been, um, what the heck is his name? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. He was in the band oh come on you guys you would know <laughs> the guitarist what's, what's his name he's such a hoot i love him he was the band original band of molly her husband and what was the third guy
0: oh oh Mackenzie gray. gray
3: yeah Mackenzie gray he's wonderful he can do anything he was the best devil he was fabulous
0: he you know, we we've had him on the show and we didn't think to ask him that question well
3: mm-hmm. you know i could totally see him doing it but <laughs> yeah. i don't know and no, I don't know what the bus is. I don't know the make of the bus either. <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay. Um, and she also had another uh, a second part to that question. Um, so, how was the Will the Wisp portrayed on set for Kara and the others to act with when it was the Will the Wisp form? Wow.
3: <laughs> to be honest, I don't think I was on set then. Yeah. I think I'm going to guess, especially because I did watch McKenzie's version. And it really was just a matter of them finding that darker, stranger, weirder part of their personality, which I can assure you, they all had. Just because you write them a certain way doesn't mean they don't have a lot of different parts of the personality that, that are perhaps you know, not explored in the show, but they're absolutely there.
4: Yeah, I, I think both of them did a really great job with mm-hmm. acting in those episodes.
3: Yeah, and I I like because Molly sometimes had to be so loving and motherly and Jack had to be so wholesome and brotherly and to let them be degenerates once in a while is a good thing. (laughs) Actors like to push their envelope, they do.
0: All right, well now we are in the portion of the interview where we're going (laughs) to answer some questions from the fans that have been submitted to us from social media. Uh, so if the Jetsons comes up at any point in this round of questions, I, it's not I on never me. had anything
3: to do with the Jetsons. I have no recollection. <laughs>
0: and All right, this first question comes from Monique Rowe. And uh, actually, this is this is not a question at all. So I'm just going to read this and uh, (laughs) it says, no wonder so weird was so well written and created. I didn't even know what questions to ask. I'm so blown away by who ran the show.
1: (laughs) Well, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, going on to the next question. So this is from Lauren Lola. Uh, she asks, or she says, Banshee is most definitely a fan favorite among the So Weird fan base.
3: Yeah, that's Uh, so well done.
1: mm -hmm. I was wondering if you can talk a bit about the writing process for that episode. How difficult was it to be writing that tense dynamic between Molly and her father? And Fee has some Irish roots that play a role in the series. Was there much research that went into the Irish lore?
3: There were... There was always research between John and I, there was always research. We, if anything required that sort of background, then we would always make sure that it was on the money. I remember the set and how amazing it looked finally, but it was, uh, it was just something we had the p and I don't know. If people live in Vancouver, they know what it is. A P&E at that time was just a huge building and we built all our sets in there. And that was just a wonderful set that we had put together that looked absolutely fantastic when they walked through the hall, et cetera. And then we had to shoot in the woods for a while. In terms of the familial aspects, I will guess, I won't speak for John Cooksey, uh, although I could in a way because obviously we were married a long time and I know his his relationship with his, his parents to a certain degree, but certainly issues with fathers is is somewhat ubiquitous issue you know i had my issues with my father he had his issues with his father we were writing something that wasn't unknown to us and we understood what it was like to have fathers who perhaps you wanted something from you couldn't always get and she reached out to him musically and i thought that was really that was a beautiful aspect of it i really like that and it was it was a challenging episode to do but i thought it was beautifully done
4: does that answer
1: your question? I think so, yeah.
4: I guess a similar question was from Masterpiece Lady. They wanted to know where you did most of your research for the Banshee F. So where you did your research? Did you go to Ireland, I guess? Actually, John and I did
3: go to Ireland, mm-hmm. but not to do a. <laughs> Believe me, if I could have <laughs> thought I could have deducted it, I'm on my way. But no, um, we had been in Ireland, as a matter of fact. Neither of us. Irish, uh, I am of a Norwegian background, and he's of English-German background, um, but we had been to Ireland, and we're quite taken with a lot of it, it which is absolutely, I still have Celtic jewelry and uh, various things that that I accrued there, and I know that that was something that had caught our imagination at the time, because when we, when we had uh, talked about Banshee, that was certainly something that had impacted us at the time. But where did we do our research? You know, that's one of the great things about Google nowadays. Let me tell you. <laughs> Before you had to go to the library, <laughs> whatever. So a direct place I did the research, I don't remember. You just, you know, you, you, you get what you have to get. And then, you know, if you're really a fancy schmancy writer, then you have researchers. But we had no researchers. <laughs>
0: So this question comes from Billy, the Disney guy. How did you Billy the Disney guy? That's what he (laughs) wants to be called.
3: (laughs) And that would be what?
0: Uh, He wants to know how you came up with the story for the episode lost.
3: That's the (laughs) one where
0: the little girl is in the coma.
3: Oh, you know, please don't beat me up. But I don't remember. (laughs) You know, I was thinking ironically of my dad's story lost. Little girl lost. That's what came to mind.
1: I think I saw on Wikipedia, um, it shows how they are, there were writers for this episode, but then I think it said, like, story play, or the story was by you and John, but, yeah. but there's different writers. So I, I'm not even sure what the difference between those two are.
0: Yeah, you know, I wish a story after 20 20 that years
3: episode. that I could remember every nuance, every moment. But like anything else in life, you kind of can't. Uh, there's things that very much stand out to me and then some things because you know it's every day right every single day and you know some of it became rote and and some of it was fabulous and some of it was not and you know that's kind of how it worked yeah so i can't remember i apologize but i cannot remember every episode i'll bet john cooks he can he's so annoying
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um a lot of these questions uh we definitely understand like it's so hard to remember even last week like what well you know i (laughs) i've
3: done other like john and i ran collector i don't know if you guys are aware of that but we Mm -hmm. ran the collector which was also a a, it's unusual dark so weirdy kind of show that we shot overseas etc so you know it's like when you do enough and you keep you know keep doing things it's like you, you you only remember so much yeah, I highly um, recommend The Collector if you can see it. It's a very good show. i
2: actually been wanting to watch through that. I just don't know where to watch it.
3: Oh, <laughs> I don't
2: think it's streaming it's, anywhere.
3: Uh, it is streaming. I'm trying to remember where. I'll have to find out but uh, it's excellent show. We won uh, Best Series in B.C. for it. Huh. The, um, yes. the Leo for it. Where is it streaming? I'll have to look it up. I mean, I just discovered so weird streaming, so, you know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but I'll, I'll go ahead to the next question. So this one's from uh, Jenna Ann. And she asks, if you remember the backstory for the episode, Rebecca. So that was the episode where um Molly's Yeah, I know that episode. John
3: did the music on that. That was a beautiful episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting episode that was really about... I think emotional changes and friendship and, and people losing track of each other, et cetera. Um, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting episode because it was something kind of ephemeral and mysterious about it. IE as Rebecca was that, that, you know, that she had not aged and that obviously Molly had, I
1: don't know. I
3: just remember that. Yeah. You know, I don't remember all the nuances of every single thing we discussed, but I remember because all of us were of a certain age where we could talk about those things. And actually, I think that's an advantage to having people, you know, over 20 doing shows because they have history and they do have changes and loss and growth, et cetera. You may not be the new young hot writer, but you also know what it's like to lose track of friendships and people and what happened to them, et cetera. So I think it was kind of, that was the, the genre we were working in.
4: Okay. Uh, the next question is from Kaylin Michelle. And uh, they wanted to know, why is it that only Fee and not Jack experiences the paranormal? Why do you think that is? Uh, they thought maybe it was tied into the ring that, that Molly and, and Fee have.
3: Well, that's a good question. And I think, ultimately, I can only give him my answer. And I think if you ask John, he, he might indeed have a different answer. I think, A, you're correct that, Molly and Fee have that connection and are more attuned to his loss. I mean, I still remember that one line where Fee says, don't, you know, what about dad? What about dad? Don't, you know, he's just talking to Jack and Jack says, you know, I miss him too. But that's, that's not where Jack is willing to go. He's emotionally like, I'm going to be the big brother, I'm going to take care of things, but being like, I'm going to grieve dad and I'm going to feel that and I'm going to go after that. He's not as emotionally, I think, in touch with his feelings as V is and or as his mom is. So I think that's why the two of them connected up and why we do have those scenes where the two of them are feeling the loss and the pain of the father. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also just on a sheerly linear idea you if everybody is coming from exactly the same place it's hard to write you have no conflict Mm -hmm. you have it's like three people in exactly the same emotional place in a scene it's like oh my god (laughs) and if they're all in exactly the same place and they've got nowhere to go either
1: and that's what makes you know each character special i think like it makes jack's small emotional scenes Like at the end of that episode, Medium, when um, Fee and Molly are kind of crying together, playing Rick's guitar, and we see Jack listening.
3: Which is a beautiful scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Jack listening versus coming in and going, oh, I want to be part of this. Right. right. You know, that's not how people work. People work like I feel my feelings, but I'm not ready to expose them, or I'm not in touch with them, or I'm not. I don't want you to know. He's the only male, you know, Eric Von Dieten notwithstanding. He was the only, you know,
2: he f- feels the need. He needs to take care
3: of his sister and his mother. Mm-hmm. And it's a male strength thing too.
2: So um, the next question comes from uh, Kyra Leela on Instagram. She asked uh, if you have any uh, favorite quotes from the series that you can remember. Favorite quotes? Uh... I don't think so. Just, I just have
3: favorite moments. I have favorite visuals. Yeah. Uh, thing That's what strikes me is just remembering, like strange geometry, remembering filming that where the people were circling around the outside and that scene, which was so intense of, uh, is she going to see her father? Is she going to do this? That was really intense and emotional and also, just being in the mall and her shooting the fountain and all of us. And that was snow outside, <laughs> being outside when she was, you know, trying to get inside mm-hmm. with the fountain, things like that. And, you know, it's just to me, it's like it's almost like a cornucopia of pictures and moments. Yeah. You know, things, uh, laughter and hugs and arguments and all that stuff that that to me is, mm-hmm. is my memories of the show.
0: Wow. Um, so our next question here comes from, I believe that you would pronounce this uh, Gui, Gui, <laughs> Uh I don't know how to say it. It's it's from Twitter. And the question is, are there episodes you wrote inspired by events in your life? Oh, sure. Yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah, that's inevitable. That's absolutely inevitable
3: because like I said, we write what we know As mentioned. I've had certainly my father was a re, you know, a remote person and in Banshee uh, Molly's father is a remote person. And, and I, I wrote what I emotionally understood as did John, yeah. which is, I think why, because both of us have, have gone through the journey of trying to get in touch with our own feelings over the years. Mm-hmm. And to me, If writing does not, if it doesn't resonate from somewhere in a person that we recognize as the audience, then I know for myself, I completely tune out. It's funny, my husband and I, we just turned on Troy last night on Netflix, whatever. And there wasn't one person doing one realistic thing that I could relate to. I I couldn't understand what anybody was doing, why they were doing it, who they were. It was just a lot of people running around and jumping on horses and yelling and screaming. And I said, I have no interest in this. Zero. Because I'm not invested in anybody. I think one of the reasons people love so weird is because they're invested in the characters. What happens to them? Will they be okay? Where are they going to go? You know, that's. Yes. I think that's part of why when you lose a show, when it has to end, it's hard because you, especially as writers, producers, you're mostly invested, not only in the characters, but in the people themselves, because you get to know them. You're with them every day.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the same person also is interested in knowing if there are any episodes you wish you could rewrite from So Weird.
3: Hmm. Maybe medium, because I, I understand a little bit more about who those people are now after actually talking to some of them and why they do what they do. I think I would not make the medium as as two dimensional, mm-hmm. for example. I yeah. I think I would be addressing things that I understand better now, both as somebody of an older age and as a mother of a grown up child and an older writer. So it would be inevitable that things would be written differently because I'm at a different stage.
0: Well, and going off of that statement, um, the same person, their last question is, in the last 22 years since So Weird ended, how do you feel your writing skills have changed in that time?
3: Hmm. Well, So Weird made me value, as did my relationship with John Cooksey, very much that a, a writing journey that was of love and truth and honesty and courage. And a, a true aversion to writing materials, unless you're utterly broke, of course, that is is just fatuous or a lie, et cetera. There's it's like we only get, well, ostensibly, we only get one, you know, swing at bat here. So to me, some of the things I'm proudest of are things where a truth has been spoken that people can understand, that they can say, okay, this character. Like, you know, even, even in the Rugrats where Chucky finally comes to deal with the fact that his mother is gone because his father couldn't deal with it because it was too emotionally upsetting. And I still remember the line where he says, well, oh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I'll miss her too much. And she says, well, that's okay. Then you can miss her together. And that, And it's just that simple little step of growth. And I thought there was a lot of emotional growth and so weird that I was very touched by and... I'm not always able to emulate that or hired to emulate that, but that would be my
4: goal.
0: Okay. And uh, <laughs> that episode of Rogue is one that I think a lot of people remember as well. That was definitely an episode that had an impact.
4: Yes. And
2: the only one that I do remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was
3: the one we were nominated for an Emmy. And, and it's interesting because that was such a truthful, honest, loving episode. And that's in a way that kind of launched our career in a whole different direction.
4: I was just going to say, um, yeah, that episode really had, an, you know, a, an emotional impact on me as a, as a kid when I watched it and I didn't find out until, until years later that you and John Cooksey had a hand in it. And I was not surprised in the least by that because it just felt
1: like something. John like, Cooksey something had so no weird. hand in
3: Jetson, so don't drag him down in the
1: <laughs> 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 Going on to the next question. This is from Jessica Pena. She asks, I'm curious about where the esoteric occult themes for the show stem from and what the process was for presenting this material to a young demographic. Um, how did you maintain that balance of too scary and not scary enough? Was there a metric that was used? Did Disney? Did she
3: use the word metric? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's a Mensa attack. Um, well, First and foremost, I mean, think about where I came from. Think of my background. It's like, okay, let's have dinner and discuss the occult. It was just sort of uh, a permeation through my life, that strange and mysterious thing. You know, my, my father, uh, he took me to a, um, a seance or, yeah, but that, one should not take teenagers as seances. Can I tell you? It doesn't work out well at all. Um, but, you know, it's like my father had pyramids in the living room and he would have mediums. It was just so the, the strange and mysterious certainly inculcated my life from the get-go. And John had certainly a very deep interest in it, too. I know he shared. In terms of not frightening the masses, well, I don't think any of us had any interest in as I mentioned terror or anything like that it, it, it's, i think that what we do did is far more subtle than that far more subtle and neither of us were interested in creating something absolutely horrific and and of course you know you can be assured if it became too horrific then disney would have you know thrown a, you know a couple of rocks at us so there always were you know sets and limits to what you could do etc And neither of us were prone to doing anything utterly horrific or, you know, I I can't stand uh, bloody, horrible, icky things. I cannot. I'm I'm still not over the shining. How many years has that been when that Mm -hmm. damn elevator door opened? It's like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) From a person considering who my father is, I'm just a big baby, (laughs) I say, my dad. But then my dad would never have written animation. So what are you gonna say? I'm not sure if I could answer her question except for the occult in the background came from both John's interests and my background and, mm-hmm. and certainly our reading and our knowledge of it. But we never, I don't think either of us ever thought so mm-hmm. weird was of the occult at any time. It certainly was mysterious and interesting, but uh, it was not occult based or, you know, wickish based or whatever. Um, and again there are, there are always checks and balances when you do a show always right. unless you are so unbelievably famous and rich like Spielberg where you are you check and balance otherwise there are people watching
4: Okay the next question is from Belinda Metz who played Irene Belinda? Yeah she wants yeah. a question for me? Yeah <laughs> she does. She oh wants my God. to know Belinda
3: what do you want?
4: <laughs> 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 she wants is to know a hard question I don't think so. I think she expects a certain answer, though. Um, She wants to know who you love to work with on the series. Oh, that's not a loaded question, girlfriend. (laughs)
3: Um, I guess the question, who did I not love working with? You know what? (laughs) I thought all the regulars were wonderful. And, you know, Mac was intense and, and driven and funny. And Belinda was a
0: hoot. (laughs) <laughs> we we
3: hired her for our other show too she just is really so much fun and she's just you know and so pretty and i like her I, I, you know we're still friends i like her a lot um and you know they get on your nerves they're only there for one episode so you know surely when you when you work on shows over years absolutely there are going to be times when there are individuals who don't jive with you and vice versa and any any producer who ever said they loved every actor they work with is a big fat liar because mm-hmm. it's just not true They, you know, they, things happen and, and people can be mercurial. But overall, everybody was so weird, was, you know, crew and cast. It was just a really cool experience. Really liked it. OK, Belinda, but you were the best. I loved you best better than anybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dave on Instagram asks, did anything weird ever happen on set?
3: Every day, <laughs> we were weird people doing a weird show. Uh, I guess the, the thing would be define weird
2: uh, anything paranormal. I think they, yeah.
3: Well, to we things. were oh my gosh, <laughs> where did we shoot? You guys probably know better than I do. We shot at what used to be an asylum, uh, of sorts. Yeah, that my husband would know what it was. Uh, it was a really creepy place to the point where and the cr- the crew were kind of like burly burly guys and nobody would go off by themselves. everybody was very very nervous at that sh- that one and I'm trying to remember which one it was it was the one again um, where you could see the special effect of the hands or the face against what looked like. Oh.
0: Strange Geometry is that episode? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Strange Geometry. Okay, so we yeah, we shot it around there. That place had bad mojo. Oh. Uh, there were a lot of things that had happened there. It was like an insane asylum, and they shut it down. But weird, bad, like at night, it just gave me, and I'm not particularly prone to that, but it gave me the damn heebie-jeebies. It truly did. It was just like it was this really scary, threatening atmosphere. So... Oh. Other than that, I mean, as, as I mentioned, ghosties give me the heebies, So
0: I tried to if I, you know, avoid all ghost areas, but that place was scary. Well, before we uh, go on to the next question, I do want to say I, uh, I researched this real quick. The Collector is streaming on Amazon Prime, but only in the UK. It does not seem to Which be Which is streaming... why you must move. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> seem I, to be. I
2: actually have a VPN for that.
0: <laughs> ah, well, there you go. But uh, it doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere in the U.S. Well, right that, now. That
2: sucks. That that was
3: a great show, and if you, you know what it's like, a, an adult version of so weird in a way. You Ooh. guys would really like it. I really
2: think you turned to thinking I'm in the U.K. at some point. Then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. um, well, our uh, next fan question comes from Cats and Books, and they want to know if you have a favorite song from the show.
3: You know, this, so many of the songs, uh, yeah, um, the songs uh, they did for the
0: show were beautiful.
3: <sighs> but damned if I know the titles. Cooksey, of course, knows them. Um, the one, the Scirocco on the Waves, which one was that?
0: That's Rebecca.
3: That was beautiful. That was absolutely beautiful. I, I think Mr. Cooksey uh, missed his career calling as a songwriter. <laughs> so talented. Really talented. And when I met him, he, he used to play the piano. He would just sort of extemporaneously play the piano. I thought, (laughs) ow, he's so talented. (laughs) Um,
0: And this is a question I think everybody we've interviewed on the show has been asked, but Uh um, if if, uh, So Weird was ever to be rebooted, would you be interested in participating in that?
3: Well, my question would be rebooted as what?
0: Well, yeah, they don't say, I I guess probably as a, a new television series. I don't know if they mean as a sequel or a brand new thing or what exactly?
3: Well, you know, my feeling is that there are moments in time where shows are put together, like in our movies or whatever, and everybody's of a certain age and everybody's, uh, you know, there's a journey going on with the writers, with the actors. And I think So Weird was one of those moments. I think you could recreate excuse my French, season three, pretty darn easy with just, you know, grab whoever and, and do whatever and perky perky, but could we recreate the original so weird easily? No, because we've been there, we've done that. It's there. You guys watch it and it's there. The sadness to me is we didn't finish it, but it's three quarters there. And I can't imagine, you know, people that did better than what Kara did, uh, what Mac did, what Belinda did. They all did great stuff. Mm-hmm. you would you sure you know it, it, Hollywood recreates things all the time but that doesn't make it better it just makes it
4: different
1: right I think we like many fans have a fantasy since so many things are getting rebooted where the the young actors are now adults and they're playing as moms and dads if there's any way to continue that missing storyline um which goes into the next question um from Kelly and Autumn, they were saying, can I pitch a rebo- reboot where Jack is all grown up who has a daughter <laughs> who follows in her aunt Fiona's footsteps, but on a serious note, if you were able to do this show today, would you do anything different? Hmm. Uh, well, I'm not the person I was then, and neither is John.
3: This show, it, like I said, it's an embodiment of who we were then and who they were then. Uh, our journey, our interests, their act, their wonderful acting. Again, people do part three, part four, part five of, you know, shows, movies, whatever, all the time. But short of something like Alien Becomes Aliens, of which I'm a big fan, who would have thunk I loved Aliens? Um, (laughs) It's pretty hard to make, you know, uh, sequels as good as the original, The original stands on its own. Now, of course, if they offered me a million billion dollars, then I throw all all that right out the window. For a million billion, I'm in.
4: (laughs) 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 Okay. Uh, Gosh, we're getting down to the last few questions. Uh, Mecca Electroma from Instagram asked, are there any supernatural elements you didn't use in the show you wish you could have worked in?
3: I have to say, considering... What ILM can do, industrial light and magic now versus what we could do 20 years ago, my God. It would just be that's the one thing that I would say, okay, if you redid So Weird Now, you would have amazing special effects. You know, I would certainly say you've got to get that budget ratcheted up because there is so many incredible things you can do, whereas a lot of the stuff we did were practicum. You know, we, we had to practically hang the bang, banshee just so. And she wasn't created from a little will of the wisp you know, off a machine. And, and we, we, we had a budget and we had a practicum and that's what we did. You know, it's kind of like putting a show on in a barn because we just didn't have the technology available. So, yes, of course, you can see with all the shows at Netflix, which doesn't, excuse my French, necessarily make them an absolutely, you know, fabulous show just because you have all the bells and whistles doesn't mean you've still got a good show. If so, if anything, bells and whistles uh, too often are used to cover the fact that you've got a shitty script or you have no script or what the hell. And again, I'm bringing up Troy. What the hell was that? Um, it's you know, it's a bad show when you're really looking at the horses. Going, God, I horse. Wish I had that horse. <laughs> so yeah, I wish I wish you'd have the special effects that are available now. That would have been really incredible. But that being said. Uh, you know, on a, uh, doing the practicum, we did a pretty darn good job overall. And we had some really great directors, just super, who who would work with what we had, and they were great. Okay.
1: And moving on to the last question, what are your thoughts on how So Weird still has many passionate fans who talk about the show? And is there anything you'd want to say to all those fans?
3: Well, like I said, when, when one does a show, you hope... For the best, <laughs> expect possibly the worst, and and can only dream that what you have done will last and it will resonate, and it will matter to people. I am incredibly touched that you are all out there. You, you truly, I am because it was a cre- it was a really incredible moment in our lives to be able to do that show. I am grateful that we were able to do it. And I'm incredibly grateful for all of its fans. I, I'm really very touched because I know for myself as a writer, I, I work in a vacuum. And more often than not, I think, well, you know, Jetson's notwithstanding, I haven't done anything <laughs> of value. And, <laughs> and I don't know if if what I've done will, will matter or count or, you know, people remember it. But when I get the moments like people tell me they love Halloween Town, or they love So Weird, it is such an amazing and wondrous moment because we've absolutely put our heart into so weird that, you know, there our lives were in there and the actors busted their butt to make it beautiful and make it special and make it real and touching. And, you know, I it just so much wonderful work came out of that show. And I'm forever grateful that I got a chance to work on it. And I'm really so happy you guys, are out there and you like and you like it because that's really ultimately we didn't do it for ourselves although sometimes it felt like it but you do something and you really hope somebody will like it and when they do it's it's just a really wonderful thing and I'm very grateful for all of you I I obviously you know, don't get a chance to meet you per se people are not stopping me on the street and saying god that was fabulous you know <laughs> I, I'm not an actress or anything like that but Trust me when when I tell you that it means a lot to John and I that you love and care about the show as we did truly.
0: Well,
1: yeah, thank you. Um I think uh many many of us have talked about on all the previous episodes how an episode or a character or a story will touch us in so many different ways and um I think it, evolving grief into a children's show is very impactful continuously in, in our lives as well. We're able to relate to um, fee or how Jack is kind of regulating his own emotions for his family. So thank you again for putting all your heart into writing this show. Cause it definitely, oh, you know, I,
3: I, it is my honor to have been able to work on such a wonderful show. And I'm really so glad that I could just meet, even a couple of you and, and talk to you and hear their questions. That's, that's
0: wonderful.
4: Mm-hmm. I thank, well, thank you. Thank you. We've loved having you on.
0: Oh yeah. It's been so great talking to you, Allie Marie. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on. And
4: Absolutely.
3: And I'm sorry it took so long. And next time I will have that zoom up and running so beautifully. <laughs> I hope you will all stay in touch and let me know how, how you're all doing, because again, it's just an honor to have such wonderful fans as you. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for, for saying that. You're just, It's been wonderful talking to you.
3: Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you, too.
0: All right. Well, I guess that means that we have uh, wrapped up. So this has been the So Weird podcast with special guest Allie Marie Matheson.
3: Goodbye to everybody. <laughs> Thanks again.
0: You're very welcome. Some of her most notable credits include *The Jetsons*, *Moonlighting*. Oh, oh no! No. What, what did I? What did I do wrong?
3: *The Jetsons*, oh my god! I think that was my first credit. Oh, sorry.
0: Should I start over, or do we just want to keep going?
3: That's funny. I'm sorry. That made me laugh.